Up to this point, Crusoe's admirable training had nailed him to the spot where he had been left. Although the twitching of every fiber in his body and a low, continuous whine showed how gladly he would have held permission to join in the combat. But the instant he saw his master down and the buffalo turning to charge again, he sprang forward with a roar that would have done credit to his bovine enemy and seized him by the nose. So vigorous was the rush that he well nigh pulled the bull down on its side. One toss of its head, however, sent Crusoe high in the air, but it accomplished this feat at the expense of its nose, which was torn and lacerated by the dog's teeth. Scarcely had Crusoe touched the ground when he did with a sounding thump. Then he sprang up and flew at his adversary again. This time, however, he adopted the plan of barking furiously and biting by rapid yet terrible snaps as he found opportunity, thus keeping the bull entirely engrossed and affording Dick an opportunity of reloading his rifle, which he was not slow to do. Dick then stepped close up and while the two combatants were roaring in each other's face, he shot the buffalo through the heart. It fell to the earth with a deep groan. Crusoe's rage instantly vanished on beholding this, and he seemed to be filled with a tumultuous joy at his master's escape, for he gambolled around him and whined and fawned upon him in a manner that could not be misunderstood. "'Good dog. Thank you, my pup said dick patting crusoe's head as he stopped to brush the dust from his leggings i don't know what would have become of me but for your help crusoe crusoe turned his head a little to one side wagged his tail and looked at dick with an expression that said quite plainly i'd die for you i would not once or twice but ten times fifty times if need be, and that not merely to save your life, but even to please you. There is no doubt whatever that Crusoe felt something of this sort. The love of a Newfoundland dog to its master is beyond calculation or expression. He who once gained such love carries the dog's life in his hand. But let him who reads note well and remember that there is only one coin that can purchase such love, and that is kindness. The coin, too, must be genuine. Kindness merely expressed will not do. It must be felt. Hello, boy! You've been in the wars! exclaimed Joe, raising himself from his task as Dick and Crusoe returned. You look more like it than I do, retorted Dick, laughing. This was true, for cutting up a buffalo carcass with no other instrument than a large knife is no easy matter. Yet western hunters and Indians can do it without cleaver or saw, in a way that would surprise a civilized butcher not a little. Joe was covered with blood up to the elbows. His hair, happening to have a knack of getting into his eyes, had been so often brushed off with bloody hands that his whole visage was speckled with gore and his dress was by no means immaculate. While Dick related his adventure, or misadventure, with the bull, Joe and Henry completed the cutting out of the most delicate portions of the buffalo, namely the hump on its shoulder, which is a choice piece, much finer than the best beef, and the tongue, and a few other parts. The tongues of buffaloes are superior to those of domestic cattle. When all was ready, 
The meat was slung across the back of the pack horse, and the party, remounting their horses, continued their journey, having first cleansed themselves as well as they could in the rather dirty waters of an old wallow. See, said Henry, turning to Dick and pointing to a circular spot of green as they rode along, that is one old dry waller. Aye, remarked Joe, after the waller dries, it becomes a ring of greener grass than the rest of the plain, as ye see. Tis said the first hunters used to wonder greatly at these mysterious circles, and they invented all sorts of stories to account for em. Some said they was fairy rings, but at last they comed to know they was nothing more nor less than places where buffaloes was used to waller in. It's often seemed to me that if we knowed the raisins of things, we wouldn't be much so puzzled with em as we are. The truth of this last remark was so self-evident and incontrovertible that it elicited no reply, and the three friends rode on for a considerable time in silence. It was now past noon, and they were thinking of calling a halt for a short rest to the horses and a pipe to themselves, when Joe was heard to give vent to one of those peculiar hisses that always accompanied either a surprise or a caution. In the present case, it indicated both. What now, Joe? Engines, ejaculated Joe. Eh, what do you say, Wednesday? Crusoe at this moment uttered a low growl. Ever since the day he had been partially roasted, he had maintained a rooted antipathy to red men. Joe immediately dismounted, and placing his ear to the ground, listened intently. It is a curious fact that by placing the ear close to the ground, sounds can be heard distinctly which could not be heard at all if the listener were to maintain an erect position. They're at her, the buffalo said Joe, rising, and I think it's likely there are been a ponies. Listen, and you'll hear their shouts quite plain. Dick and Henry immediately lay down and placed their ears to the ground. Now me here nodding, said Henry, jumping up, but me ear is like me eyes, very short-sighted. I do hear something, said Dick as he got up, but the beating of my own heart makes it row enough to spoil my hearing. Joe Blunt smiled. Ah, lad, you're young and your blood's too hot yet, but I'll bide you a bit. You'll cool down soon. I was like you once. Now, lads, what do you think we should do? You know best, Joe. We no doubtedly. Then what I advise is that we gallop to the broken sand hillocks you see yonder, get behind them, and take a peep at the redskins. If they are ponies, we'll go up to them at once. If not, we'll hold a council of war on the spot. Having arranged this, they mounted and hastened toward the hillocks in question, which they reached after ten minutes' gallop at full stretch. The sandy mounds afforded them concealment, and enabled them to watch the proceedings of the savages in the plain below. The scene was the most curious and exciting that can be conceived. The center of the plain before them was crowded with hundreds of buffaloes, which were dashing about in the most frantic state of alarm. To whatever point they galloped, they were met by yelling savages on horseback, who could not have been fewer in numbers than a thousand, all being armed with lance, bow, and quiver, and mounted on active little horses. 
The Indians had completely surrounded the herd of buffaloes and were now advancing steadily towards them, gradually narrowing the circle, and whenever the terrified animals endeavored to break through the line, they rushed that particular spot in a body and scared them back again into the center. Thus they advanced until they closed in on their prey and formed an unbroken circle round them, whilst the poor brutes kept eddying and surging to and fro in a confused mass, hooking and climbing upon each other and bellowing furiously. Suddenly the horsemen made a rush and the work of destruction began. The tremendous turmoil raised a cloud of dust that obscured the field in some places and hid it from our hunter's view. Some of the Indians galloped round and round the circle, sending their arrows whizzing up to the feathers in the sides of the fattest cows. Others dashed fearlessly into the midst of the black heaving mass, and, with their long lances, pierced dozens of them to the heart. In many instances, the buffaloes, infuriated by the wounds, turned fiercely on their assailants and gored the horses to death, in which cases the men had to trust their nimble legs for safety. Sometimes a horse got jammed in the center of the swaying mass and could neither advance nor retreat. Then the savage rider leaped upon the buffalo's backs and springing from one to another like an acrobat, gained the outer edge of the circle, not failing, however, in his strange flight to pierce with his lance several of the fattest of his stepping stones as he sped along. A few of the herd succeeded in escaping from the blood and dust of this desperate battle and made off over the plains, but they were quickly overtaken and the lance or arrow that brought them down on the green turf. Many of the dismounted riders were chased by bulls, but they stepped lightly to one side and, as the animals passed, drove their arrows deep into their sides. Thus, the tumultuous war went on amid thundering tread and yell and bellow till the green plain was transformed into a sea of blood and mare, and every buffalo of the herd was laid low. It is not to be supposed that such reckless warfare is invariably waged without damage to the savages. Many were the wounds and bruises received that day, and not a few bones were broken, but happily no lives were lost. Now, lads, now's our time. A bold and fearless look's the best at all times. Don't look as if you doubted their friendship. And mind, whatever you do, don't use your arms. Follow me. Saying this, Joe Blunt leaped on his horse and, bounding over the ridge at full speed, galloped headlong across the plain. The savages observed the strangers instantly, and a loud yell announced the fact as they assembled from all parts of the field, brandishing their bows and spears. Joe's quick eye soon distinguished their chief, towards whom he galloped, still at full speed, till within a yard or two of his horse's head, then he reined up suddenly. So rapidly did Joe and his comrades approach, and so instantaneously did they pull up, that their steeds were thrown almost on their haunches. The Indian chief did not move a muscle. He was a tall, powerful savage almost naked, and mounted on a coal-black charger, which he sat with the ease of a man accustomed to ride from infancy. He was indeed a splendid-looking savage, but his face wore a dark frown, for although he and his band had visited the settlements and trafficked with the fur traders on the Missouri, he did not love the pale-faces, whom he regarded as intruders on the hunting grounds of his fathers, 
and the peace that existed between them at that time was of a very fragile character. Indeed, it was deemed by the traders impossible to travel through Indian country at that period except in strong force, and it was the very boldness of the present attempt that secured to our hunters anything like a civil reception. Joe, who could speak the Pawnee tongue fluently, began by explaining the object of his visit, and spoke of the presents which he had brought for the great chief. But it was evident that his words made little impression. As he discoursed to them, the savages crowded round the little party, and began to handle and examine their dresses and weapons with a degree of rudeness that caused Joe considerable anxiety. Matwa believes the heart of the pale-faces is true.' said the savage when joe paused but he does not choose to make peace the pale faces are grasping they never rest they turn their eyes to the great mountains and say there we will stop but even there they will not stop they are never satisfied matwa knows them well this speech sank like a death knell on the hearts of the hunters for they knew that if the savages refused to make peace they would scalp them all and appropriate their goods to make things worse, a dark-visaged Indian suddenly caught hold of Henry's rifle, and, ere he was aware, plucked it from his hand. The blood rushed to the gigantic hunter's forehead, and he was on the point of springing at the man, when Joe said in a deep, quiet voice, "'Be still, Henry. You will but hasten death.' At this moment, there was a movement on the outskirts of the circle of horsemen, and another chief rode into the midst of them. He was evidently higher in rank than Matwa, for he spoke authoritatively to the crowd, and stepped in before him. The hunters drew little comfort from the appearance of his face, however, for it scowled upon them. He was not so powerful a man as Matwa, but he was more gracefully formed, and had a more noble and commanding countenance. "'Have the pale faces no wigwams on the great river that they should come to spy out the lands of the Pawnee?' he demanded. "'We have not come to spy your country,' answered Joe, raising himself proudly as he spoke, taking off his cap. "'We have come with a message from the great chief of the Pale Faces, who lives in the village far beyond the great river where the sun rises. He says, "'Why should the Pale Face and the Red Man fight? They are brothers. The same Manitou, the Indian name for God, watches over both.' The pale faces have more beards and guns and blankets and knives and vermilion than they require. They wish to give some of these things for the skins and furs which the red man does not know what to do with. The great chief of the pale faces has sent me to say, why should we fight? Let us smoke the pipe of peace. At the mention of beads and blankets, the face of the wily chief brightened for a moment. Then he said sternly, the heart of the pale face is not true. He has come here to trade for himself. Sanit Sirish has eyes that can see, and they are not shut. Are not these your goods? The chief pointed to the pack horse as he spoke. Trappers do not take their goods into the heart of an enemy's camp, returned Joe. Sanit Sirish is wise and will understand this. These are gifts to the chief of the ponies. There are more awaiting him when the pipe of peace is smoked. I have said, what message shall we take back to the great chief of the pale faces? Sanit Sarish was evidently mollified. The hunting field is not the council tent, 
he said. The pale faces will go with us to our village. Of course, Joe was only too glad to agree to this proposal, but he now deemed it politic to display a little firmness. We cannot go till our rifle is restored. It will not do to go back and tell the great chief of the pale faces that the ponies are thieves. The chief frowned angrily. The ponies are true. They are not thieves. They chose to look at the rifle of the pale face. It shall be returned. The rifle was instantly restored, and then our hunters rode off with the Indians toward their camp. On the way, they met hundreds of women and children going to the scene of the great hunt, for it was their special duty to cut up the meat and carry it into camp. The men, considering that they had done quite enough in killing it, returned to smoke and eat away the fatigues of the chase. As they rode along, Dick Varley observed that some of the braves, as Indian warriors are styled, were eating pieces of the bloody livers of the buffalo in a raw state, at which he expressed not a little disgust. "'Ah, oh boy, you're green yet,' remarked Joe in an undertone. "'Mayhap you'll be thankful to do that some day yourself.' "'Well, I'll not refuse to try it when it's needful,' said Dick with a laugh. "'Meanwhile, I'm content to see the Redskins do it, Joe Blunt.'" End of chapter 7